Hello, and uh, and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, Season 2 of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Adam Kingsmith, and I'm a PhD candidate in politics at York University. And I'm Max Haven. I'm Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies, conspiracy theories, and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. This episode, we're very glad to be joined by Marcus Gilroy Ware and discussing his recent book, After the Fact, The Truth About Fake News, which was published late last year by Repeater. And hello from me. It's a real pleasure today to welcome you to our program. My name is Aris Komporosos Athanasiu, and I'm an associate professor of sociology at the University College London. So let's get started. We're delighted to have Marcus with us today. Uh, I'll just say a few words about him and his work before we kick off. Marcus Gilroy Ware is a writer and scholar activist who is focused on understanding how people learn about the world they live in through media. His work draws connections between a variety of fields from political economy to psychology, journalism studies, to theorize the status of information in the late capitalist public sphere. He is senior lecturer in digital media at UWE Bristol and author of Filling the Void, Emotion, Capitalism and Social Media, and most recently, After the Fact, The Truth About Fake News. So um, we're delighted to have you with us today, Marcus. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so Marcus's book, After the Fact, uh, could not really be a, a most apt work with which to kick off this new series of our podcast. It really speaks to a range of themes that are core to our uh, current investigation of the politics of gamified conspiracy. The first thing I should say about Marcus's book is that it really is a tour de force of historical, social, political, cultural analysis um, of this current hot phenomenon of fake news in, in our uh, social and political reality. Uh, but it does so, does this analysis in an extremely accessible way. And the one thing, the one great core theme, if I were to name one that really makes it so apt to our discussion today is the take that it offers on the kind of forms of truth and falsehood that seem to dominate current debates around fake news. So in other words, Marcus, I think manages to do something extremely well and powerfully, which is to show that fake news in the way it's being discussed today really is a distraction often from real debates on the real causes of today's social and political conflicts and inequalities. And that the way in which misinformation and disinformation often appear under the guise of fake news is used to uh, distract and to, uh, to, to veil a much more complicated and interesting arrangement of uh, culturally ingrained forms of misinformation that uh, are sort of taking place under, um, under the surface of those, of those debates. So before I start, and I would like to read a couple of very evocative passages from the book itself that will help uh, guide our conversation today, but I just want to ask Marcus one simple question, really, and that has to do with a question mark in the title. Could you tell us a bit about its importance? Well, 
I think I put that question mark there. It's almost in a way, it's kind of a big, it's sort of a bit of a cop out because, you know, when you try to talk about truth and disinformation, quite often you can sort of slide into philosophical conversations about the nature of knowledge and truth and all these kinds of things. And I'm not negating, you know, the the validity, uh, intellectual validity of those questions, but I sort of didn't want to get into that. So, you know, the idea of a fact is very much a construct. Um, and I didn't really want to get into kind of picking apart whether facts exist or whether they're purely constructs or not. And so the question of whether we are post-factual or not, whether we are indeed after the fact, I just thought it's better to just leave that and kind of not claim that we know one way or the other. And I think actually, in a way, one of the antidotes to this kind of question of misinformation is if we lived in a society in which people did accept that they didn't know and just leave things in an agnostic state um, a lot more often. And then, then we wouldn't be always kind of either venturing answers that turn out to be wrong or, or kind of um, having these loud unknowns where then, you know, conspiracy theories and other things come in to fill, fill in the gap. So, yeah, after the fact, are we after the fact or not? I don't know. I feel like that that remains to be decided by by others. Yeah, and, and I think it, it's it's a good actually way to uh, move to my first the first passage that I'd like to read to read out and ask you to unpack it a bit for, for us because it really touches on that question of the open endedness of uh, your definition, the way you see truth and uh, and facts. And so you write in the book, and that's from uh, from chapter. Uh, two, I think. You say, any simplification of the truth is a dangerously naive pr proposition that should not be relied upon, except with extreme caution. This is not to say that there is no such thing as truth, which would be equally ill-advised. Rather, the important point is that it has become so difficult to find out whether actu what actually is true, that truth in public conversations might as well be considered a theoretical ideal at best. This is not something for which convenient scapegoats such as Facebook or Russian disinformation campaigns can be simply and easily blamed, much as they may both be nefarious influences on the world. Even they are part of a far more pervasive global system that is designed to exchange commodities and maintain its stability, not to promote or facilitate the truth, in quotes, least of all about that system itself or the localized market-driven societies that comprise it. Um, and so I think that really captures something very interesting uh, about not only what you were saying about this, this the question mark around um, our moment, but also, uh, well, I'd like, I'd like to ask you really to, to, to unpack it a bit for us, but, but I find interesting that you, what you seem to be trying to do here is to turn our, turn our attention away from those usual uh, suspects, the villains of uh, like the Russians and other scapegoats that intervene uh, to, to distract us from truth to uh, a more endemic phenomenon within capitalism itself uh, and how it positions itself in relation to truth. But yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about your, your thoughts on this. Yes, I think that was very much me trying to kind of, um, again, sort of evade the question of, of deciding you know, what's true or not, and really to talk about the status of knowledge under, you know, I mean, Marx made the point about kind of uh, ideology working as a sort of camera obscura, right, that it makes man and his circumstances feel kind of in inverse and upside down. And I felt, you know, this book, uh, as with my last book, in a way, was kind of motivated by hearing a lot of, you know, let's 
uh, a lot of bullshit, really, uh, if I can say that, about in the ways that people talk about these kinds of information systems and information processes. And I, um, the economist Mark Blythe, whose work I really respect, says that you should write about what pisses you off. And so that was what I decided to do. And I felt there was a, there's a real irony in a way that the ways people were talking about misinformation, misinformation particularly after the Trump um, victory in 2016, were so misinformed themselves and there was so much kind of technocentrism there was so much kind of um sort of centrist uh positivism and you know kind of inability to reckon with the kind of um systematic destruction of of systems of equivalence and government and democracy and so forth that had been relied upon uh, prior to that so i guess i i wanted to kind of link the the many intelligent things that have been said about um, ideology and the functioning of culture to condition what we what we know and what we kind of are con sort of conscious of to the ways we um, relate to information and to also to the ways which we had started to relate to disinformation and and, um, and misinformation so um, that passage that you read out there I think I'm, I was very much trying to say look the, the issue in a way is not actually we're not here to decide what's true and what's not right now we just have to accept that that's become a very difficult thing to do and talk about that problem you know I mean the sort of empiricist position of actually looking at things and saying which things are true which things are false is sort of untenable for most individuals we're, we're forced to rely on these kind of incredibly rich and complicated architectures of information to learn anything about the world and so you know we need to talk about that and, and that's really where our focus should be, not, not actually establishing sort of veracity. That's, you know, I mean, a whole kind of interesting and complex and flawed process in itself. I mean, I teach journalism students, so, you know, we talk about fact-checking and those kinds of things a lot, but it's always kind of slightly amusing to me in a way because of the, you know, parts of that process that involve making so many leaps of faith and value judgments and so forth are not actually anything to do with the truth um, when you're fact-checking. So, yeah, I just felt like I wanted to kind of redirect the focus as far as talking about misinformation, disinformation, and that I felt like that that needed saying. So that's what I was saying in that, in that passage. Yeah, great, great. And I, and I think that in doing so then, what you are also doing in a very... Uh, in a fascinating way in the book is that you then move on to examine the other side of those debates around truth uh, and facts, uh, which is what we frame as conspiracy and conspiracy theory. And mm. I think one of the things that I would like to ask you about is that distinction that you make between conspiracy theories and conspiracy, and which, as I understood it, um, you, you have this you know, you go really in depth into a historical analysis of, of conspiracy as it emerges as part and parcel of uh, free market liberalism um, within, within capitalism itself. Um, and you, as, a, as something very pervasive uh, that kind of invites us to kind of take a step back and think about then conspiracy theories in the form of QAnon or, or anti-vaxxers and so on in, a, in quite a different way. Um, and I just wanted to read another short passage that will just uh, prom pro to, to prompt you to tell us a bit more about this. Um, so in, in your chapter, in chapter three, where you uh, zoom in in this world of conspiracy theories, I mean, it's really very rich. So uh, a couple of short passages. 
at one point you write that um, beyond the broader features of the prevalent misinformation and disinformation that underpin the market-driven society in the ways outlined in the previous chapter, such as the widespread illiteracy or outright bullshit, there are some important lessons we can learn about the social and political origins of this information from the prevalence of these persistent, if bizarre, accounts about how the world works. The most important of these are the prevalence of actual conspiracy. The fact that conspiracy theories are, are a response to the, uh, to the conniving nature of actual power. And finally, the socially and culturally driven ways that these theories often entrench themselves in our thinking. Um, and you say, just to, to read another short passage, just to, uh, you, where you unpack this a little bit more, uh, you talk about, you say, while the exercise of power also consists of plenty of blatant wrongdoing against innocent members of the public, such as the killing of innocent civilians or the destruction of the natural environment, these acts become conspiratorial once, once the disclosure of their occurrence is restricted in a way that permits them to be carried out in the first place, to be continued, or to avoid consequence for their having taken place. And then finally, you say, uh, uh, you say uh, um, when one considers the proven accounts of corporate and government, government malevolence, told in, in the examples, the many examples that you give, it's not hard to ask, what are these if not examples of conspiracy of the highest order? Does that mean that the main, main uh, that the many painstakingly researched investigative reports on which these accounts are based should be considered conspiracy theories, in quotes, even with reliable proof? Some readers may think that the answer is yes, but the more sensible conclusion to reach is that whatever the details of the bizarre unproven theories to which some people subscribe, this form of actual conspiracy is everywhere. And its careful control over information is built into the very fabric of market-driven societies. Um, so <laughs> the, the floor is, is yours. Just, uh, I mean, I think this is really a powerful way of capturing that distinction that I was talking about earlier, but yeah, tell us a bit more about, about this. It, it, it's funny when you read back passages of, of, of the book to me, I pretty much haven't read through it myself since I was doing the proofing on it because I have a sort of aversion to looking at my own work once it's out in the world. Um, so it's quite funny because I, mean, I sort of, I'm always slightly more colorful in my language than I think I've been. <laughs> so, um, but um, thank you, it's really an honor. Um, and you've been very kind about my way. It's really an honor for you to pick out these, these bits like this. I really do appreciate it. I think um, with that section, you know, I was, I've always been fascinated by conspiracy theories. Um, I know someone, I've known someone my whole life, uh, sort of my extended family, who, who is a conspiracy theorist. And, you know, I've always thought that there are certain things in our society that we sort of dismiss as just being plain crazy. And I, I, I think some of, you know, some of those things, including conspiracy theories, are, are not crazy. Um, and actually they have an explanation you know, and that explanation can be, can come from the individual and also from the society in which that individual, you know, exists, right? It's always, it's always both. And um, so I knew that this book was going to have um, a, a chapter on conspiracy theories because I felt that disinformation is not just a sort of weird, you know, 
thing that floats around like a sort of gas right it's 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 there it has a driver it has an engine um and that engine for disinformation is frequently um the conspiracist form that it takes and and that is you know the, there is no other possible source that that could have than the very real um con- sort of conspiratorial form that the exercise of power often takes and and so many scholars and journalists have have exposed so many instances of this that it's really not uh, a secret or a particularly contentious claim and yet um, I was quite amused to see that there was a major study in um, The Guardian. Uh, I think it was Cambridge University, but it was reported in The Guardian uh, on conspiracies in Britain that said that, you know, 60% of Britons or something believe in a, at least one conspiracy theory. But one of the of the 20 different conspiracy theories that they had asked people about was that some powerful group of rich people somewhere exert more control you know, exert control over the way things run. And I was like, yeah, that could be the board of Walmart, you know, that could be the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, how, you know, how far-fetched is that? Like, we've we've already done the work of of establishing that. So if that's what you're calling a conspiracy theory, then then there's a problem in itself. Again, we have misinformation about misinformation. Um, And, you know, I've had a lot of sort of, discussions and arguments with people across the political spectrum about these issues because you know they inflect strangely it's not like it's a left-right issue right there's conspiracism everywhere um but the most difficult opponents i've had in terms of of those conversations have been the kind of centrist positivist people who accuse anyone with suspicion of being a conspiracy theorist including me um and i was just not really having that so again, I felt we needed to do some work. This was actually one of the most difficult um, sections of the book to write as, you know, it took me days to go through all of these different examples and to really prove as best I could um, that the capitalist world is full of, you know, um, wrongdoing that is concealed in ways that allow it to continue or, you know, to, to be done in ways that escape accountability. And um, actually, I think the whole question of accountability is is under theorized and something that I would like to work on more in the future. Um, something I'm sort of putting together in my head something to kind of theorize blame and what is blame and how does blame work. But anyway, um, so yeah, that that passage that you that you read out, I think, is very much my, my kind of responding to the accusation of you're a conspiracist um, when actually we try to talk about how conspiratorial capitalism really is. And the last thing I'll say. It's just that then, of course, we have these things that really are, you know, disinformation that really are just, you know, what we call conspiracy theories. Um, And I felt that they, too, even if they have no basis, in fact, are driven by the same kind of conspiratorial structure that the world has. And actually, it's the failure of literacy, which I know is something we're going to talk about in a bit. But the sort of we are not equipped by that capitalist world to deal with its conspiratorial structure. So we're left in this weird gap between, yes, uh, capitalism is sort of conspiratorial, but no, we don't have in a a nearly as widespread uh, kind of distribution as we need all of the tools to be able to kind of really investigate and learn about and, and, 
you know, get to the bottom of those those questions. And even when we do, because, you know, these things are kind of out there, frequently people are a lot less interested in, in that, actually. They'd much rather believe in something like QAnon than read a, a report on, you know, Enron or something like that, where you have, or Volkswagen, you know, uh, when you have real corporations being conspiratorial. Um, so there's, you know, there's lots of other... Um, things that sort of obfuscate that and, and lead us uh, in another direction. And of course, believing untrue conspiracy theories only aids and assists even more the conspiratorial nature of, of, of capitalism itself, because it distracts us away from, from finding out those more truthful accounts. Yeah. I wanted to jump in here and just say, I really, this is an aspect I really appreciated about this book is that you go through and show how, in fact, the, the moment of sort of market-dominated capitalism we live in is based on these forms of collusion, perhaps conspiracy, certainly cartelization of various factions of the capitalist class. That's, that's how the system works. Um, but then also, I think you do such a great job in, in asking people to rewind to the post-war, to the neoliberal revolution, and the longer history of things like the advertising and public relations industry, which basically has meant that we live in a world of disinformation and, and basically weaponized bullshit. Um, mm. and, and that helps prepare us to embrace the kind of uh, conspiratorialist thinking that now is decried. And then a third aspect of that beyond, you know, what the actual capitalist class is doing and beyond the, the histories of the um, PR and advertising industries and, and disinformation industries, you also have this analysis of the way that that system produces within it uh, profound alienation, uh, profound loneliness. And, and here I wanted to ask you to maybe link a bit um, this book uh, after the fact to your, your previous book, which was about kind of the emotional life of uh, under, under this mode of capitalism, this digitalized form of capitalism. And I, I was I was so taken in your chapter on conspiratorialism at, at the moments when you you really show us how much um, sense of well you draw on Durkheim's notion of organic solidarity a little bit and you also talk about the kind of pleasures that people have of following the crumbs following the breadcrumbs discovering finding community with one another and I know this is a theme that we're we're trying to understand as well. I wondered if you could just speak about that, about, about kind of the pleasures of conspiratorialism, the dark pleasures, perhaps. Well, I mean, I think in the first place, there's a sort of love, isn't there, of, of feeling like you finally have the truth, you have found the truth. And, um, you know, there's been a series of documentaries uh, recently on British TV trying to unpick some of the same issues that are covered in my book. And one of the more startling claims in that series of documentaries was um, the, of how anti-social uh, conspiracies, conspiracy theories are and how they, they are sort of, you know, a product of, of um, separation and alienation. And I, I, I disagreed so much because I felt like these, these are profoundly social phenomena and there's a sort of real kind of countercultural way in which they operate as well, right? We are the ones who have found the truth. Um, I, I wish I had done or had the opportunity to do a little bit more um, by way of, of engaging with the kind of sociology of people who, who are um, conspiracists themselves. I feel that that's, that's missing from the work. Um, it was the, the longest chapter and, and definitely the most difficult chapter to write. So um, in a way, there was a sort of constraint there with the trade press, you know, you've got a very tight deadline. But um, 
so I, I feel that that's, that's not something that I'm sort of, um, that I, I deal with quite as much as I would have liked, but I, I definitely think that there is this kind of, it's very cultural. It's, of course, it's in lots of um, media and television and film and the sense of discovering the truth and discovering conspiracies. And this is kind of very much in, um, in our imaginations. And then of course, you know, the, the fact that we are able to talk to each other in so many ways, um, you know, by virtue of the affordances of, of social media um, and the kind of relatively little control that is exerted on in those um, architectures means that, of course, we can spread these things to one another much more easily as well. And if you combine that with the things we were just talking about before, the actual sense of like, we are, we know we're being conspired against, um, then it's kind of, it's only a matter of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a given that, that these kinds of things are going to spring up. Obviously, um, conspiracism is old, um, but these are very favorable conditions for it to, for it to spread and proliferate. So, um, you know, in, in my teaching of journalism, um, we talk a lot about how facts also and, and journalism and news are intensely social as well and have a, have a long social history. And I think, you know, really it's narrative, isn't it? Whether you're talking about the actual news or you're talking about kind of um, strange conspiracy theories, the idea that we would be kind of telling these stories together is, is, is what binds them what binds it all together that is the glue that makes these things kind of have a life um as far as my other book um i think there there was a kind of attempt to deal with the fact that you know social media are um sorry they are emotion driven and it's really our affective responses to those media um that that keep us coming back and keep us checking and keep us engaging with them and so the sort of, again, rational positivist account that's been given of, you know, these platforms as sort of information spreading platforms um, was something I wanted to take issue with there. And um, so absolutely, you can see how, you know, a conspiracist narrative is the perfect fuel for, uh, for those things to kind of really um, benefit. Mark Zuckerberg talks a lot about how he doesn't want there to be disinformation on Facebook, but actually it's a key part of what's keeping their business afloat. I saw some of your uh, interviews you were giving when, when the book came out and you had this great line about journalism and the problem with journalism. The only people that are reading these sort of critical stories are the people who kind of already know about this situation, you know, and, and you, you framed it in terms of a problem of, of how do you sort of stimulate people's curiosity. Um, and I thought you had this really great phrase when you were trying to talk about how you reach out to people who are kind of caught in conspiratorial traps and super conspiracies as a combination of patience and emotional intelligence. Um, and I would love if you could maybe speak a little bit more about what you mean by that, tease that out a little bit more. Well, the question of what's to be done is always the most difficult question, right? And I mean, I think ultimately with conspiracy theory, you know, you have to, ultimately we have to make society less conspiratorial um, as the sort of main solution, because that's the main kind of driver of it. But, you know, I have uh, a good friend actually also who has kind of leanings towards uh, conspiracy theories. And he was an early reader of the chapter um, because I wanted to kind of test it on him. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there is, you know, when things are kind of pathologized and we refuse to understand them, and which is obviously not something that any of the four of us do, because, you know, we're, we're interested in, in kind of the way these things kind of come about and, you know, as, as social and psychological phenomena. But um, I think 
in general in society, the way that these things are pathologized and the kind of accusation of oh, you're a conspiracy theorist um, can drive these things underground and actually make them, you know, there's uh, Michael Buchan has this idea of, um, uh, what does he call it? Sort of almost like renegade kind of devious knowledge, like this is a way in which because we're being stigmatized, it must be right because the kind of big, the great systems of the world are the things that are conspiratorial. So if those systems are telling us that it must be wrong, then it must be right. Um, and so I feel like that's always the wrong approach to come from, to come from there. And actually, I mean, I guess I meant what I said was if you just kind of sit and listen and kind of argue back and forth a little bit and, you know, make people feel like they aren't being judged or accused of being crazy, um, then sort of actually validate their suspicion because suspicion is a perfectly valid political instinct, one, highly justified actually. Um, so if you can sort of validate that part whilst, you know, kind of suggesting that maybe some of their factual assertions might not be quite right or, you know, sort of make them feel that you're sitting next to them rather than across from them. I've had good, good experiences with that in the past in terms of trying to kind of, particularly with COVID, trying to kind of bring people around and say, yeah, well, you know, big pharma, actually, that is a, they are a big problem. There's lots of things you can point to in the pharmaceutical industry that are terrible, but actually they haven't cooked up a virus to then sell us vaccines. That's, you know, uh, but I can see why you might think that, but here's an article that might help or something like that, you know, and it, you can sort of, it's it's always a bit dicey because, you know, um, some of these theories are really problematic and, and also like um, once you start validating little bits of a way of thinking about the world that's highly problematic, you know, you run the risk that the person is going to think that you're completely on their side, which is also, you know, not the case. Um, but I do feel that we don't have the luxury of just kind of withdrawing into, you know, into a consensus um, and that we do, we do need to try to kind of have some of these conversations, you know, where it's possible. So, and, and I think that's actually a very good point uh, to bring up the question of literacy that you uh, alluded to earlier, Marcus. And, and it was one, uh, there's one more passage that I'd like to read from the book, which uh, uh, speaks of this question, touches on that question of literacy as a means uh, for uh, thinking about literacy in a collective, in a way of like building solidarity uh, uh, rather than in the kind of um, derogatory way of Ill illiteracy that we that we tend to hear from the sort of liberal uh, the bastions of kind of defense of the world of truth and facts. So you you write the idea of literacy can function helpfully in both the, lit the literal sense, the ability to read and write easily, and in the more helpful metaphorical sense, a familiarity with the accepted analytical systems and mechanisms of how the world works in a way that makes it more difficult to believe disinformation and misinformation that are, that are at odds with this knowledge. Literacy is the perfect, a perfect metaphor precisely because the skills referred to by its literal meaning have suffered the same fate and for similar reasons, as the broader sense of familiarity, which you then outline. And just to follow this up, you say, you talk late, a bit later on in that chapter about uh, how the failure of literacy also manifests in a much thicker, more politically important ways as a kind of ignorance, again, not in a pejorative sense. And you write, once again, with, as with basic literacy, the lack of this form of literacy is a problem that affects everyone and cannot be individualized. 
To do so is exactly what the market-driven society wants, not only so that we will compete with each other, but because individualized and fragmented understandings of the world are at least part of what hinders our emancipation of it. We all need as richly developed an understanding of the world around us as possible. A world, let us remember, that contains burning forests, nationalist leaders, pandemics, and so on. Um, the structural denial of this literacy to one person is a deprivation to everyone because we are dependent on each other to understand the world and respond appropriately. And I think, you know, this is a really important point and uh, it links also to the question of what to do and, and how to kind of resist uh, uh, this, how to go beyond that false dichotomy between truth and facts that you, that you unravel in the book. But yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about this idea of literacy? Again, it's one of those things that sort of, um, you know, you, I think you have to speak about very um, cautiously and I, I do my best in the book to, to do that because absolutely this kind of sense of, of pathologizing the state of ordinary people um, and sort of holding them responsible for that is, I think, um, you know, an inexcusable way to, to approach this. But, you know, um, I think I came across a lot of examples where, you know, I mean, first of all, the, the main question we should be asking about so-called fake news, or one of the main questions besides just looking at its origin, is like, if you're going to look at the whole picture, um, why were we so vulnerable to believing some of these things to begin with? You know, and that was not a question that was, I think, asked very much around the time when fake news kind of spiked as a sort of term that, that we used to talk about this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, there has to be a, a, an engagement with, a discussion with, you know, of, of the status of knowledge. Um, and, you know, I think early on in the book, I talked about the question of value and the sort of hollowing out or, or narrowing of, of the question of value um, so that, you know, at our moment in, in history, what is valued is basically what that which can have its value recognized in, in a marketplace of some kind. And I know from, you know, teaching in higher education for the last 13, 14 years now that, um, you know, the language that we talk to students um, in about what they are going to get from us has really changed. And it, um, even in that time, you know, and it's very much like we were going to, we, you are here so that we can give you something that will enable you to have an economic livelihood in the future, you know? And that's, that's an example of the, of the narrowing of this question of value. And so when you don't value things for their own intrinsic positive effect they may have on your life, um, the ways that they may help you to understand the world better or, you know, forms of um, engagement with other people and ideas that they might foster, but rather only for their exchange value, basically, um, then you jeopardize uh, some of those things. And I felt that there was a link between, you know, making this world in which value is narrowed to kind of market value and exchange value, and then a world in which we have become extremely um, vulnerable to to forms of misinformation and disinformation that are you know, sometimes quite convincing and which really play on the anxieties and, and fantasies that we have, whether they come from popular culture or from knowing that the world is conspiratorial or um, from simply our fears. You know, um, I have a good friend who's an imam and um, I regularly have conversations with him about the kinds of completely crazy things he has to deal with people saying to him what things they believe about Islam, you know, in, in British society. 
Um, and so that I put that together with my own experiences as a kind of young Marxian and the kinds of things that people believe about Marx, which again are totally kind of, you know, not in line with, with any of the, of, of the works of Marx um, and just other kind of things that we're seeing, you know, whether in a med medical and scientific context or the kind of climate change crisis or whatever. And all of these show that, you know, the, the, the status of knowledge about how the world works, not just kind of literacy in a kind of shallow sense, but really a deep understanding of the functioning of, you know, the world. And also if you think about kind of the way an imam would, would relate to, you know, um, Islamic scripture or the way a Marxist scholar would, would know all of the works of Marx, there isn't just a kind of like verbatim reading out or remembering of these things. There might be that, but there is also a much deeper understanding um, of those works as well. So literacy isn't just about reading and writing in the end. Um, it's about really knowing how things function and having a sort of almost intuitive, you know, flexible, um, generative relationship to, to the world where you can fill in the gaps in a sensible way um, that's consistent with what you, you know, with what you do know. And the more you erode those systems and structures of what we know about the world, um, the more you're going to produce kind of, you know, um, pathological information uh, processes and distortions and so and so forth. And, and I think that's what a lot of what we're seeing, both with cons conspiracy theories, um, but also, you know, other kinds of, of disinformation uh, and misinformation as well. And the people aren't really being equipped with the, th the things they need, the tools they need for thinking about the world in a way that that will stand them in good stead. So, uh, and that that's something which is heavily social. As I say in the, in the um, passage that you just read out, you know, we're dependent on each other. It isn't a question of, you know, uh, individual responsibility. We're seeing this with the climate crisis. You know, it only takes you know, a certain minority to be heavily climate skeptical before the whole process of reforming our society in order to survive this great threat is, is seriously undermined. I mean, the government that we have in the UK at the moment was elected by 29.3% of the population. Um, sorry, not, it was of a 65% turnout and 45% of the votes. So it's actually 29% of the electorate. Now that's, really quite a small minority it's less than a third right if if half those people are climate change skeptics then even within their own party they can already be steering the direct the policy direction um and if you're left with this kind of 15 percent of climate skeptics for example um then the rest of us have got to sit there and watch our society be destroyed and run off a cliff um and we have no control over that and so there's an example there of just you know a small number of people not having the literacy that they need Okay, it isn't only that. Obviously, there are all these other things um, that we've been talking about, you know, the conspiratorial form and the forms of anger that people have and so forth. But that kind of the lack of that knowledge is a factor as well. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's a huge part of why we are so vulnerable as a society to these kinds of informational problems. I wonder if I can follow up on that quickly and just ask you if you see what you see is the vehicles for expanding a kind of critical literacy. Um, because one of the, of course, one of the things you point out in the book and, and that I think we're all grappling with, I, I, all four of us, I think, are involved in some way in the 
in the institution formerly known as the university uh, is, is an increasing skepticism towards uh, what were once presented to us as the legitimate bastions of knowledge, legitimate uh, you know, spaces of literacy, uh, whether that's the university, mainstream media, even kind of the literary establishment, both fiction and nonfiction has, you know, there's a great deal of distrust in these institutions, largely because, as you also point out, they've been corrupted essentially by this very system of capitalism that's giving rise to this crisis of values that you speak of. So as we as we now think about how, how do we turn the tide, how do we um, inculcate this and, and encourage and foster these kinds of literacies, what kind of formations or institutions do you see as kind of at the forefront of that? Wow, that's a really, uh, it's a really big question. It's a really good question. I think, I mean, I, I can just offer a few little fragments probably, but um, in journalism, you know, uh, journalism education, I've been talking to my colleagues a lot about uh, this because we're building a new, a new program at the moment. And there's a sort of sense of like, at least from where I'm coming from, the newsroom is sort of happening over there, right? And there are certain students who want to go and be in the newsroom and read read the TV news or whatever. But actually, that isn't the main, that's been hollowed out just like journalism, sorry, just like uh, democracy has. So let them do that. But we need to go where the people actually are. And so in, with my students, we look at things like TikTok and we try to kind of just... Um, take account of the more organic ways in which people are being exposed to media about, about the world they, they encounter. And, and like many people under lockdown, I went onto TikTok um, and was quite surprised because I thought it was all kind of like dance routines and, and kind of special effects and this kind of stuff. And actually there's a huge number of, you know, quite knowledgeable people taking time to make videos explaining really interesting things about the world, political things, scientific, you know, issues. Um, so I'm not saying that the answer is TikTok, but I'm saying that they're in a way an organic, a bottom-up approach to, to media, which I think is, is something that, you know, that's an old idea, right? The left has always kind of, um, in a way, uh, aspired to that. I think that that has to be kind of scaled up now. And so there are ways in which, for example, what, so one of the best jobs I ever had was to be director of public engagement for the sociological review when it got kind of turned into a charity about seven years ago. And um, before, after a while, these things get locked down and turned into sort of more conservative institutions. But there was a wild era of a few years where we could sort of play. And we, we were making sociological memes. We were kind of really kind of getting creative about just putting stuff out into the world that would enable people to discover, you know, sociological thinking um, in a way that's, you know, entertaining and that um, relies on, I guess, some of those kind of uh, emotional and affective processes that I wrote about in my first book. If it's funny, people will spend more time looking at it, you know, if it's impressive or, or kind of surprising in some way, people will spend more time looking at it. And so, um, you know, it's not that the system can be gamed as such, but I think if you kind of look at what people's actual motivations are for engaging with media, which are frequently things like passing the time or, you know, distracting themselves from their own lives and make media that kind of address those needs. You can also, it's a bit like if you could have junk food that's actually secretly quite nutritious, like you could, 
I think combine that with with uh, you know with forms of media that are also informative as well. The problem is that we always just respond to misinformation and disinformation by pleading the facts, the facts, the facts, and that's um, you know that's unfortunately, as we all know, uh, that's not enough. So. Practically speaking, I think, I mean, one of the things I plan to do in the next few years is to set up an institution that really mixes the things I learned about public engagement um, and then that sort of bottom up cultural approach to public engagement with, you know, um, high quality research of the first order into, into questions of real public um, importance. And not just to make it about the research, not just about the kind of making of, of these media, but really to integrate the two processes together. Um, you know, we as academics are under, pub, you know, under pressure to publish journal articles that, as they say in the book, then go behind these paywalls that our same universities that are paying us to produce the, the research are then paying thousands of dollars to then access the research that's being published there. That is not a good model for discovering new things about the world and sharing them with that world. I think um, it's not that the, the, the burden necessarily falls only on our shoulders as the researchers, but I think it falls definitely on the structure more broadly for us to be trying to think about other ways that, you know, we can make these things more accessible and more discoverable and more, more engaging than a sort of 8,000 word journal article written in, in dry academic language. It's one reason why I've been writing trade books rather than, than those journal articles. Um, so thank you again. This is, it's, it's time to wrap up. Thank you again so much for being here with us and for um, talking to us more about your wonderful book. It's been a real pleasure having you uh, on the programme. Thanks for having me. It's been an enormous honour and a great um, privilege speaking with the three of you. And um, I really appreciate the attention that you've, that you've you know, taken in, in looking at my work. It's, it's real, really nice. Another great conversation and a great one to kick off uh, our series two here on the order of unmanageable risks uh, this season on conspiracy games and counter games. Um, this season, uh, we're going to continue our tradition of uh, following up the interview with a little wrap up comments from all of us, some reflections. And, and we thought maybe this time we'd start with Adam, who you might remember, regular listeners to our podcast will remember, was a guest last season and now joins us as a co-host. Uh, welcome to this first episode of being a co-host. And yeah, why don't you kick us off with some reflections on Marcus's uh, interview? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's, it's great to be here on the, I guess, other side of the table, so to speak, uh, the virtual table. Um, but yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy with where that conversation went. I really like how we kind of left it off talking about play and the possibilities of kind of games. And it just kind of reminds me of some stuff that kind of cuts across Marcus's work, right? Which is a, a more interesting way of, of dealing with the problem of technological determinism. You know, he, he talks a lot about how when we think about things like social media, instead of saying that they're causing a lot of the conspiratorialism and causing the sort of rise of fake news and post-truth, it's about how they're more like cynically exploiting it. And, and therefore, can we find a way to like non-cynically exploit it or, or mobilize it? Um, and I thought that was really promising. And again, I think there's, there's too much of an aversion uh, of these tools and technologies and like it's kind of, oh, it's lost and we just have to kind of surrender it to capital. But, you know, I think as Marcus pointed out very nicely, these are some of the main ways in which people can get information. There's a lot of like really good, critical, interesting information on these kinds of platforms. 
And I, I think that progressive movements need to take more seriously how we can how we can weaponize or mobilize them, you know, and repurpose them and and not just surrender that terrain to kind of the right. So that was something that really, really stuck with me in terms of play that I that I really thought was good. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And uh, if I could mm. come in, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I, uh, for me, this is what I found really uh, prescient and um, really excellent as a positioning in of the critique that Marcus is proposing to us, which is it is a critique of a, a system and that relates this discussion of fake news as an issue that has to do with capitalism itself, but it kind of moves further to say something about the productive elements and the social elements of those kind of counterforms uh, that are emerging in that system of, of even conspiracy, the, the, the side, uh, the side, those dimensions of conspiracy movements that represent those collective political aspects that we tend to miss, we tend to kind of overlook in, in mainstream uh, critiques of conspiracy. So, yeah, so I also enjoyed the, the kind of hopeful note on which we concluded. And there is definitely something there, as, as you said, Adam, about um, adopting a more um, uh, nuanced and a more sympathetic, maybe, perspective when we look at even things like you know, cultural instruments, digital cultural instruments, you know, TikTok and, you know, how all these things are being used on the ground level by people to fill in the gaps and to connect. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about going beyond the veneer, the, the kind of the level of um, dismissal uh, to, to, to try and understand really what lies in the root of that. And, and, and so, because that's the first step in reappropriating and wielding in, in different ways. So yeah, and I think Marcus's work really opens up a very nice window onto, uh, onto such a mm. path. I, I really appreciate it in his work and in this interview, the way that he is always linking the, t- the, 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 the kind of um, epistemes and affective uh, economies of conspiratorial thinking to the ways in which essentially to, to cut a long story short, our brains have been rewired by capitalism and specifically capitalism and its neoliberal financialized market driven form such that, you know, as he points out, like what made us susceptible? This is like, like, a, like other kind of pathogens like conspiratorialism and has, has always been with us, but what made it so that our society is so susceptible? And I appreciated near the end of the interview today, he brought it back to this question that, you know, and he takes up in, in terms of the work of uh, Mark Fisher of what happens to value under late capitalism, where, you know, whereas in an earlier phase of capitalism, the sort of bourgeois ruling class was very insistent on maintaining these spheres of non-market value, you know, the family, uh, puritanical morality, the Protestant work ethic. Um, as you know, these these were sacrosanct. You know, nationalism. These couldn't be touched by the market. Now everything seems to fold into the market, and I think it helps explain too the 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 vociferousness and the um, missionary zeal or crusade-like qualities of so many of today's conspiratorialist movements, because they claim the a kind of moral high ground. So if we think just about the QAnon um, conspiracy theorists, for instance, I mean, these are people who are fundamentally worried about uh, the sex trafficking of children, the commodification of children's lives. 
that is something that is that happens under late capitalism. It happens under under other systems too. But thinking about them reacting to a system where all values are collapsed into the market, such that even children can be commodified, maybe helps us understand a bit better why otherwise, quote unquote, otherwise good people and quote unquote, otherwise intelligent people uh, might be attracted to this. Uh, because not only does it give a triumphant narrative of self that you are discovering the truth about a terrible conspiracy involving the most powerful people in the world, blah, 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 uh, which is, of course, very affirming in a world of alienation. It also gives you a sense that you are fighting against a paradigm of value or valuelessness, which perhaps you cannot name in its like complexities as those of us were trained at sort of like Marxist political and cultural theory can, but you nonetheless sense because it resonates with every institution around you. It reminds me, um, and I think it can dovetail at some point in the future with some really interesting work done maybe even about 10 years ago by Massimo De Angelis, a uh, political economist associated with thinkers like uh, Harry Cleaver and George Cafensis, Silvia Federici, the sort of commoner school of autonomous Marxism, where he points out that we really can understand all of the struggles against capitalism, both the ones that we might identify and sympathize with, and the struggles that we might find objectionable as essentially value struggles. These are struggles against the relentless way in which capitalism combusts everything in our society into basically monetary and financial value. Um, and maybe starting from that position then gives us a, an, an interesting orientation to come back to these things that we've just been spoken about and we concluded with Marcus on, which is how do you then make a more substantial, a more radical, a more transformational analysis of that system irresistible in the same way that in some ways these wild, hackneyed, absurd narratives and theories of how that system works have been made irresistible and how do we use the latest technologies or how do we mobilize the latest technologies or residual technologies for that matter to contribute towards that irresistibility yeah exactly i mean it kind of and maybe the temptation to link this to a, a grand conspiratorial narrative is, is also a form of conspiratorializing but i think uh in response to this kind of sort of neoliberal subsumption of everything into the market so that that almost becomes invisible um i, I see this theme connected across all of our work and marcus's work as well right is this call for like a recentering of the economic a recentering of processes of commodification but then i think the challenge is you put it very nicely max is how do we do that in this way that is sort of irresistible and not and not sort of dry and inaccessible and overly intellectualized i think becomes the challenge for sure well, this seems like a good place to draw our first episode of our second season to a close. You have been listening to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, season two of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. More information about this podcast, uh, to listen to other episodes, or to learn about the broader project of, what, of which it's a part, please visit www.conspiracy.games. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye.